All right. We are back. Political theory and um, other stuff. Mike and Paul reading The Racial Contract by Charles W. Mills. The section we're on is The Racial Contract has always been recognized by non-whites as the real determinant of most white moral slash political practice and thus as the real moral and political agreement to be challenged. We are partway through that section. We're at the bottom of page 116. And Paul, do you want to get us going here? Yeah, let's do it. Getting started. Okay. So on the level of the popular consciousness of non-whites, particularly in the first phase of the racial contract, but lingering on into the second phase, racial self-identification was deeply embedded with the notion that non-whites everywhere were engaged in some kind of common political struggle so that a victory for one was a victory for all. The different battles around the world against slavery, colonialism, Jim Crow, the color bar, European imperialism, apartheid, were in a sense all part of a common struggle, uh, were in a sense all part of a common struggle against the racial contract. As Gary Okirio points out, uh, what came into existence was a global racial formation that complemented and buttressed the economic and political world system, thus generating transnational identities of white and non-white. It is this world, this moral and political reality that W.E.B. Dubois was describing in his famous 1900 Pan-Africanist statement to the nations of the world. The problem of the, obviously this is a, a quote from from that work. The problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, since, as he would later point out, too many have accepted that tacit but clear modern philosophy which assigns to the white race alone the hegemony of the world and assumes that other races will either be content to serve the interests of the whites or die out before their all-conquering march. It is this world that later produced the 1955 uh, Bandung Indonesia Conference a meeting of 29 Asian and African nations, the underdogs of the human race in Richard Wright's phase, whose decision to discuss racialism and colonialism caused such consternation in the West at the time. Uh, he says at the time, but I feel like it would also today cause consternation. If they did that, bit. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, we've talked about it before, but it's a prime example of that 1776 project or whatever the shit that was. Uh, no, um, it's 1619. Or no, no, fucking Trump's uh, 1776. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because they were so mad about the 1619 project. Right. So there you go. There you go. Obviously, uh, that color line was a very large problem and one that's uh, well, still and, existing and, today. And that was just, you know, a collection of essays by the New York Times uh, that a few schools said they might teach, you know. Uh, what yeah. we're talking about here is multiple nations uh, getting together and saying, hey, this is fucked up. So I can't imagine the response if that happened today. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. No, exactly. It would be um, just why is everybody so angry and focusing on division Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that sort of nonsensical bullshit. Okay. Caused, so yeah, okay. Uh, whose decision to discuss racialism and colonialism caused such consternation in the West at the time. The meeting that eventually led to the formation of the non-aligned movement. And it is this world that stimulated, in 1975, the creation of the World Council of Indigenous Peoples, uniting Australian Aborigines, New Zealand Maoris, and American Indians. 
If, to white readers, this intellectual world, only half a century distant, now seems like a universe of alien concepts, it is a tribute to the success of the rewritten racial contract in transforming the terms of public discourse so that white domination is now conceptually invisible. Yep. Uh, that's my addition. Yep. Good call there. Uh, well, and then you know, obviously <laughs> what we were just talking about, the... Um, when they when they try to make it visible again, there's that immediate backlash to it with the, right. the and it's 1775 such a, shit, you know. Yeah, and it's such a it's just such an indicator of the fragility of it all, or at least mentally, you know. It's like you can't even discuss what we did wrong. Sure, everything is fucked because of it, but I won't hear it because that might make you angry, mm-hmm. like at us. It's uh, obviously that's obvious, but it, it's. It's just such a ridiculous position. Um, And I, yeah. If to white readers, this intellectual world, only half a century distant, now seems like a universe of alien concepts, it is a tribute uh, um, to the success of the rewritten racial contract in transforming the terms of public discourse so that white domination is now conceptually invisible. You can just cut that whole part and just we'll start here. (laughs) As Leon Polyakov points out, the embarrassment of the death camps on European soil anyway led the post-war European intelligentsia to a sanitization of the past record in which racism became the aberrant invention of scapegoat figures such as Joseph Arbor, or Arthur Gobenau, I'm sorry, uh, a, sorry, Joseph, a vast chapter of Western thought is thus made to disappear by sleight of hand. And this conjuring trick corresponds on the psychological or psychohistorical level to the collective suppression of troubling memories and embarrassing truths. That the revival of Anglo-American political philosophy takes place in this period, the present epoch of the de facto racial contract, partially explains its otherworldly race insensitivity, the history of imperialism, colonialism, and genocide. The reality of systemic racial exclusion are obfuscated in seemingly abstract and general categories that originally were restricted to white citizens. And they... I mean, just on a personal experience, that's about the only thing that I think I can legitimately connect to um, is that kind of disappearance of a genocide, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be honest, it's not something that haunts me or keeps me awake at night or anything. But being Armenian, it's like I have literally been in arguments uh, with people where I'm like, yeah, no, uh, my ancestors were definitely systematically killed by the Turkish about 100 years ago. That's why there's only like four people uh, in my Armenian side of the family. Uh, and I have had, especially online, multiple people be like, that's not what happened. Uh, so. God damn it, dude. That's not what happened. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so, you know, and I, I very distinctly know that's what happened uh, because it was uh, recently enough that the people who survived it communicated with people that I know. Yeah. So, you know, like my great grandma. Uh, her family was literally, she was the only one who survived. And then she was uh, a beggar on the streets of Cyprus uh, until like via uh, a program that seems pretty gross nowadays, but I think was philanthropic when it happened. My great grandpa actually escaped before the genocide uh, and was working the rails and people that were working the railroads were buying basically Armenian brides to get them. Or Armenian men who were already here were basically buying Armenian brides just to get them out of the area. Uh, and that's how my great grandma got here. Yeah, holy so, shit! Holy shit! Yeah, yeah. Like I said, I'm removed enough from it that it, and it's so 
not focused on that I don't really think about it that much, you know, but it is a reality that I have had people try to deny it to my face. I'm just like, oh, I fuck. <laughs> okay. Like, what do you do? Yeah. It's just awkward. Feels weird silly. for sure. Yeah. And especially like as an Armenian, it feels weird because I just didn't know there were was that much impetus for it, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. To deny it or whatever. Uh, but Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, the reality of systemic uh, racial exclusion are obfuscated in seemingly abstract and general categories that originally were restricted to white citizens. But the overtly political battles for emancipation, decolonization, civil rights, land rights were only part of this struggle. The terms of the racial contract norm, non-white persons themselves, establishing mora- morally epistem- epistemological. Or no, epistemically. Epistemically. Epistemically, thank you. That word was getting me shrugged. So, okay. The terms of the racial contract norm, non-white persons themselves, establishing morally, epistemically, and aesthetically their ontological inferiority to the extent that non-whites accept this, to the extent that they also were signatories to the contract, there is a corollary personal dimension to this struggle, which is, which is accommodated with difficulty, if at all, in the categories of mainstream political philosophy. Obviously, that's something we've talked a lot about, and I think you've spoken about it very well. The kind of rewriting so that you can be a part of this system, not white, and still yeah. you know, participating in it in a not positive way, obviously. Yeah, or just perpetuating the status quo. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Like I said, you talk better about it. Uh, Operating on the terrain of the social contract and thus taking personhood for granted, failing to recognize the reality of the racial contract, orthodox political theory has difficulty making sense of the multidimensionality of oppositional non-white political thought. What does it require for a subperson to assert himself or herself politically? To begin with, it means simply, or not so simply, claiming the moral status of personhood. So it means challenging the white constructed ontology that is deemed one a body in politique, an entity not entitled to assert personhood in the first place. In a sense, one has to fight an internal battle before even advancing onto the ground of external combat. One has to overcome the internalization of subpersonhood prescribed by the racial contract and recognize one, one's own humanity, resisting the official category of despised aboriginal, natural slave, colonial ward. One has to learn the basic self-respect that can casually be assumed by Kantian persons, those privileged by the racial contract, but which is denied to sub-persons. Uh, I'm not going to read all of that again because it's already been recorded, but it's just, it's literally hard not to kind of tear up when you read that, when you really think about the place that people have to exist for this to work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's just fucking so demoralizing from every aspect and and just the knowledge that enough people are fine with this, that it is the hegemony is really, really a downer, Mm -hmm. um, obviously. Particularly for blacks, ex-slaves, the importance of developing self-respect and demanding respect from whites is crucial. Frederick Douglass recounts how a man was made a slave and promises, you shall see how a slave was made a man. But a hundred years later, this struggle is still in progress. Negroes want to be treated like men, wrote James Baldwin in the 1950s, a perfectly straightforward statement containing only seven words. People who have mastered Kant, Hegel, Shakespeare, Marx, Freud, and the Bible 
find this statement utterly impenetrable. On point, on point, for sure, for sure. Linked with this personal struggle will be an epistemic dimension, cognitive resistance to the racially... Paul, where are we? What is that word? I'm also still trying to figure it out. Uh, mystificatory. Okay. Mystificatory. Like I'm gonna look it up. It seems like a word that should be. It should just be like mystification, like mystique, or yeah. It's just a word I've never seen before. Or if I did, it just didn't make an impact. I guess. Uh, I'm going to look it up just to be safe because I've learned a lot with this project. But one of them is that I should never trust my guessing <laughs> of what a fucking definition is. It's one of those words that doesn't autofill. Okay. Causing mystification. Okay. Uh, and okay. how do you say it again? <laughs> uh, what's fucked up is it doesn't like it doesn't come up with like a pronunciation next to it. It's basically. I mean, I know how to say mystification. Yeah. So, so I'll, maybe I'll just mystific. Mystificatory. 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 Okay. Um, cognitive resistance to the racially mystificatory aspects of white theory. The painstaking reconstruction of past and present necessary to fill in the racial gaps and erase the slanders of globally dominant European worldview. One has to learn to trust one's own cognitive powers to develop one's own concepts, insights, modes of explanation, overarching theories, and to oppose the epistemic hegemony of conceptual frameworks designed in part to thwart and suppress the exp sure, and suppress the exploration of such matters one has to think against the grain there are excavations of histories canceled by the racial contract native american black american african and asian and pacific investigation and valorization of their past giving the lie to the description of quote, savagery, and the state of nature exists of peoples without history. The exposure of the misrepresentations of Eurocentricism, not so innocent white lies and white mythologies, is thus part... I just really like that turn of phrase. What? the After all of this, you know, kind of it, we're getting into the closing statements, is thus the part of not so innocent white lies. Oh, yeah. Yep, in quotes, yeah. It's just, yeah. I like that. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, like, little white lies, but here we're talking, you yeah. know, it's just, I thought it was real cute. It is, okay. it is. Is thus part of the political project of reclaiming personhood. The long history of what has been called in the black oppositional tradition vindicationalist scholarship is a necessary political response to the fabrications of the ra racial contract, which has no correlate in the political theory of the social contract because Europeans Europeans were in cultural control of their own past and so could be confident it would not be misrepresented or perhaps better, the misrepresentations would be their own. Finally, the somatic aspect of the racial contract, the necessary reference it makes to the body, explains the body politics that non-whites have often incorporated into their struggle. Global white supremacy denies subpersons not merely moral and cognitive, but also aesthetic parity, particularly for the black body, phenotypically most distant from the Caucasoid somatic norm. The implications often are the attempt to transform oneself as far as possible into an imitation of the white body. Thus, the assertion of the full black personhood 
has also sometimes manifested itself in the self-conscious uh, repudiation of somatic transformation and the proclamation, black is beautiful. For mainstream political philosophy, this is merely a fashion statement. For a theory informed by the racial contract, it is part of the political project of reclaiming personhood. Uh, we're getting into the next section here, and the next section is called The Racial Contract as a theory is explanatorily superior to the raceless social contract in accounting for the political and moral re realities of the world and in helping to guide normative theory. So, the racial contract as a naturalized account, henceforth simply the racial contract, is theoretically superior to the raceless social contract as a model of the actual world and, correspondingly, of what needs to be done to reform it. I, therefore, advocate the supplementation of standard social contract discussions with an account of the racial contract. It might be replied that I am making a kind of category mistake, since even if my claims about the centrality of racism to recent global history are true, modern contractarianism has long since given up real-world explanatory pretensions being hypothetical subjunctive exercises in ideal theory. So the fact that actual societies were not based on these norms, even if true and unfortunate, is simply irrelevant. These are just two different kinds of projects. It really is like, you know, I mean, this book was written in 1997 or published in 1997. It's just shockingly prescient how much that notion has taken over modern day politics i mean i can't i should always hesitate to say taken over uh i should say is still a large element to politics when i started paying attention roughly 20 years later you know like it's you can work on discussing reality you can read wonderful books like this uh, and you can pre present that information and they will simply just discard it as irrelevant and present you with their reality, which is not founded in anything but how they want you to view the world. Yeah, so I don't think... Do you know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying, and I do think that that exists in contemporary political discourse. However, I think that passage is about, in the academy, there is a group of philosophers that are con modern contractarian modern contractarians and modern contact contractarians according to this passage have given up their real world explanatory pretensions and they are currently focused on being hypothetical on a ideal theory on an ideal world and he's saying right which is like you know like ben shapiro being like well, see, all blacks have the same rights. Well, don't you understand that women can vote and work? Like, it's that ideal contractarianism to what people are trying to say uh, about the reality of the racial contract or the reality of what that being the basis of Western civilization has done to oppressed or outgroups. And then you have those contractarians talking about, like, well, ideally, in this, you know, in our modern society, all of that is irrelevant. Uh, because of this that uh, is kind of more, I guess, how I see it in modern times. I can't, 
I mean, I guess does Jordan Peterson count as an academic contractarian? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't. Even think if so. he doesn't like write in his field while he. Yeah, I have no. Does that yeah, shit. I have no idea. But um, yeah, I get what you're saying, and that does make sense. I think Mills does a good job um crushing that argument right here. Oh yeah, it's yeah, it's an absurd, absurd thing, and it's absurd. It still exists. Yeah, for sure, for sure. The discussion at the beginning should have made clear why I think this answer misses the point. Insofar as the moral theory and and political philosophy of present-day contractarianism are trying to prescribe ideals for a just society, which are presumably intended to help transform our present non-ideal society, it is obviously important to get clear what the facts are. Moral and political prescription will depend in part on empirical claims and theoretical generalizations. Accounts of what happened in the past and what is happening now, as well as more abstract views about how society and the state work and where political power is located. If the facts are radically different from those uh, that are conventionally represented, the prescriptions are also likely to be radically different, which is what you were talking about. Now, as I pointed out at the start, and indeed throughout the absence from most white moral political philosophy of discussion of race and white supremacy would lead one to think that race and racism have been marginal to the history of the West. And this belief is reinforced by the mainstream conceptualizations of the polity themselves, which portray it as essentially raceless, whether in the dominant view of an individualist liberal democracy or in the minority radical Marxist view of a class society. So it is... Boom, called me out like a motherfucker. (laughs) So it is not that mainstream contractarians have no picture. Indeed, it is impossible to theorize without some picture. Rather, they have an actual tacit picture, which in its exclusion of marginalization of race and its typical sanitized whitewashed and amnesiac account of European imperialism and settlement is deeply flawed and misleading. So that so the powerful image of the idealized contract in the absence of an explicit counter image continues to shape our descriptive as well as normative theorizations. By providing no history, contemporary contractarianism encourages its audience to fill in the mystified history, which turns out to look oddly like the ostensibly repudiated history in the original contract itself. No one actually believes nowadays, of course, that people formally came out of the wilderness and signed a contract, but there is the impression that the modern European nation-states were not Uh, centrally affected by their imperial history, and that societies such as the United States were founded on noble moral principles meant to include everyone. But unfortunately, there were some deviations. Sorry to interrupt. I just want to have a question, like a real question for you. Uh, He says, no one actually believes nowadays, of course, that people formally came out of the wilderness and signed a contract. Now, I understand that he is talking... And excuse me, uh, um, people listening, I have a little bit of a, a cough today. Does it count that people literally believe 
the like Genesis account of things has like signing a contract to somewhat step out of the wilderness. Like I understand that's not really the level he's talking about, but I wonder how much negativity is out there that people actually believe that. And then a decent segment of Americans believe that black people come from the cane line of extra altering that contract. Do you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Like, I don't, I don't know if that's relevant at all, but that really stuck out in my head when we read that. Okay, yeah. <laughs> because I have, like, met people that literally believe that black people <laughs> are there because they betrayed God's contract. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, it's quite possible. The racial contract explodes this picture as mythical, identifying it as itself an artifact of the racial contract in the second de facto phase of white supremacy. Thus... In the standard array of metaphors of perceptual conceptual revolution, it affects a gestalt shift. Do you know what that means? Gestalt? I looked it up fucking last night, dude, and I already fucking forgot. That's so frustrating. Yeah, I have no idea what it means, so um, I'm going to look it up, sorry. Okay, an org, it's a, a noun in the realm of psychology. And it's an organized whole that is perceived as more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, which is really weird to me. Man, that's pretty conceptual. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to like think. Of I an tried example. to. Yeah, exactly. I tried to look up examples, and I couldn't find anything that really resonated with me last night, which is why I probably forgot it. Like, do global politics, like the UN or something like that, count? Like, yeah, maybe, but not really, because I almost think of it as the has the opposite. Like, if you actually combined all those countries, it would seem more powerful than the UN in my head. I guess. Okay. Maybe yeah. I'm totally off base on that. But yeah, I can't actually think of an example. Yeah. Not that they don't exist. I just... Okay, cool. It affects a gestalt shift, revising figure and ground, switching paradigms, inverting norm, uh, inverting norm and deviation to emphasize that non-white racial exclusion from personhood was the actual norm. Racism, racial self-identification, and race thinking are then are then not in the least surprising, anomalous, puzzling, incongruent with Enlightenment European humanism, but required by the racial contract as part of the terms for the European appropriation of the world. So in a sense, standard contractarian discussions are fundamentally misleading because they have things backward to begin with. What has usually been taken when it has been noticed at all as the racist exception has really been the rule. What has been taken as the rule, the ideal norm, has really been the exception. Damn. Uh, Yeah. That's one of those sentences where it's like, I wish that was an exaggeration. Yeah. Or... Uh, but no, but no, not at all, unfortunately. All right. The second related reason that the racial contract should be part of the necessary foundation for contemporary political theory is that our theorizing and moralizing about the socio-political facts are affected in characteristic ways by social structure. There is a reflexiveness to political theory, to which in theory to in which it theories about it theorizes about itself and later theorists critique the blindness of earlier ones it's fun to do that that's why we do this (laughs) Uh, the classic texts texts of the central thinkers of the western political tradition for example plato hobbes Locke, burke 
marks, typically provide not merely normative judgments, but mappings of social ontologies and political epistemologies, which explain why the normative judgments of others have gone astray. Uh, I know I was kind of kidding about it a little bit, but it's so necessary that people continue to do this. I mean, I know inherently there's always a little pushback when you try to move theory and think about new things, uh, but that's that's what's required. Like, I think a huge part, obviously, of what this book is trying to portray and things we've talked about quite a bit is the negative effects of still being attached to the founding fathers, of still, you know, I mean, like, it's it would be fine if we just held them in reverence, but we, you know, how many people just quote them or say, you know, because of this, because of that. And it's like, well, that was 300 years ago. We've moved on in ways that they couldn't have even imagined. We need to, we need to break that norm at some point. Um, I just think it's unbelievably important. And I'm so grateful for the people that do and are capable of doing that. Um, Uh, These theorists recognized that to bring about the ideal polity, one needs to understand how the structure and workings of the actual polity may interfere with our perception of the social truth. Our characteristic patterns of understanding and misunderstanding of the world are themselves influenced by the way the world is and by the way we ourselves are, whether naturally or is shaped and molded by that world. So on point. So one needs... That's so on point. Yes. It's so cool. So one needs criteria for political knowing, whether through penetrating the illusory appearances of this empirical world, Plato, through learning to discern natural law, Hobbes, Locke, through rejecting abstraction for the accumulated wisdom of prejudice, Burke, or through demystifying oneself of bourgeois and patriarchal ideology, Marxism, feminism, particularly for alternative oppositional theory, as with the last two. The claim will be that an oppressive polity characterized by group domination distorts our cognizing in ways that themselves need to be theorized about. We are blinded to realities that we should see, taking for granted as natural what are in fact human-created structures. So we need to see differently, ridding ourselves of class and gender bias, coming to recognize as political what we had previously thought of as apolitical or personal doing conceptual innovation, reconceiving the familiar, looking with new eyes as the old world old world around us. I mean, it's that's just so pithy, so on point. One of the things that like sticks out to me with um, conversations I often find myself in is seeing things that you thought of as apolitical or personal and recognizing them as political. The amount of times that I have people like, well, I'm just not into politics or I just that's too political for me. It's like, well, yeah, but everything is politics like this. Any any societal suggestion, any of that sort of thing is political. It exists that, you know, and a lot of people do accept those sorts of things has dogmatic existences of, well, it's or just n- how it natural is. You know, existences. Natural. Yeah, 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 that's a much better word. Yeah, just natural. Yeah, good call. The natural order of shit. And it's like, well, no, that's fucking bullshit. And yeah, and that's a really dangerous, dangerous thought pattern. And like you were saying, like all kinds of things perpetuate that sort of stuff, you know? Like uh, Danny was talking to me about, uh, uh, he was like trying to learn more about um, FIRE. What does FIRE stand for again? Uh, finance. It's, yeah. Uh, real estate and uh, investment or something? It's, yeah, it's like finance industry, real estate. And I can't. Finance investment and real, it might just be finance investment and real okay. estate. So 
he's uh he's on Google and whatever, and he comes across the Wikipedia article for Capital, not not the book, but like the concept of Capital. Concept. Yeah. Okay. And in the second uh, sentence on Wikipedia, it says something to the effect of like, uh, for the hunter and gatherer, the arrowheads were their capital. And it's like, oh my God, dude, dude, if that is, you know, and people will read that and think that's real and it perpetuates right. this like that capital is natural, you know, so. And not only will people do that, people do that. Yeah. I uh, encounter that argument, not all the time, but more often than I would ever like to, where people are just trying to convince me that capitalism existed in like Babylonia or Mesopotamia. And it's just because you don't know what capitalism is. Yeah. <laughs> like if there is uh, some sort of feudal element controlling all of the markets or controlling the price of things, it's like, no, that's, that's not capitalism. It's not. Yeah. Then you try to explain it. And then they just tell me I'm an ignorant asshole. Uh, which is fine because I am in so many Me regards, too. Me too. but not in that one slight instance where I do actually uh, understand the difference between barter, yes. trade, yep. uh, and markets. capitalism or the markets yep. controlling uh, how everything is, yep. is operated with them. Yep. So, I mean, like there is no system that I'm aware of that would be able to get rid of things like barter mm -hmm. and trade. Mm -hmm. Or that anybody's desiring that. Like, it's um, the overarching um, system in which you have to, to live your life and do those things. And, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, it's not what this book it's is just about. funny. Uh, so, my point was yeah. is that that uh, that sort of um, misinformation, whether it's intentional or not, does perpetuate the yeah. the mystification that he's talking about that needs to be demystified for us to be able to move forward. Because if we don't understand our our world, then then we can't build um, something new out of it. You know, right? Exactly. And why are we so afraid to understand our world? Like. Whatever. We fucked up. Let's not fuck up more. We'll fuck yep. up again. It's fine. Yep. But we can be realistic about it. Uh, now, if the racial contract is right, existing conceptions of the polity. Boom. 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 That's what's up. That's just crazy. You know, it's kind of like thinking that um, you've got the same ethical or moral standing to be in a BLM march as storming the Capitol. Right. You know? Yeah. I guess it's hard to see when you're being a dick. Well, shit. I mean, obviously, we are coming towards the end of this book, so uh, you know, he will. It, it makes sense that it's it's being wrapped up so succinctly and yeah, um, so well. But man, that was just uh, a powerful few pages to read. It really yes, was absolutely. Uh, and I I hope we were able to convey it as a a, a powerful few pages to listen to. So yeah, totally, totally. Uh, and uh, next time we might even be finishing this bad bitch up. Yeah, yeah. It will be a momentous occasion, for real. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we look forward to diving into um, the rest of the book next time. For sure. And as always, thanks for listening. Have a good day.